Good morning, everyone. Welcome again to our service here this morning. Again, a privilege to bring God's Word to you. It is some a task that is heavy, and yet it is so such a privilege to be able to take God's Word and, and to minister it, preach it, and to teach it. And we just ask that God will help us to understand His Word this morning as we are in the book of First Peter again, and we come to a portion that is becoming very practical. And we are in First Peter chapter 1, and our text is from chapter 1 verse 22 to chapter 2 verse 3. First Peter chapter 1, 22 to chapter 2 verse 23. And the title of this message this morning is An Earnest Love. An Earnest Love. Peter writes in verse 22, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flowers of the grass. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice, and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So as we saw in the previous section of verse 13 to 21 of chapter 1, it would have been the last time I preached a message, that was the portion we were in. The imperative and indicative pattern continues into this section as well. The imperatives are commands given to the Christian based on truth statements known as the indicatives. So in other words, do this because of that. Peter uses the indicative statements of what is to logically move us towards what ought to be. These are the imperatives or commands. So Peter is making these truth statements, who we are, what is, what are these, these things are facts about our position in Christ, who we are, and then because of this, it moves us to what we ought to be, what we ought to do towards the imperatives. In our previous passage, we saw Peter describing the Godward responsibility that the gospel creates. God's elect should set their hope fully on God's grace. We saw in verse 13. We should be holy verse 16, and live in reverent fear, verse 17. Because of the truth of God's salvation, of undeserving sinners such as ourselves, so because of that truth, because of that salvation, we are to be, um, sorry, we are to set our hope fully on God's grace, be holy, and live in a reverent fear. In this passage, Peter is now showing us the Christian's manward responsibilities. The manward responsibilities of the gospel. 
how we treat our fellow man, our brothers and sisters in the church and in Christ because of the gospel that has saved us, because of our salvation, because of being new creatures. We are to love one another earnestly, we see in verse 22. We are to put away malice and long for pure spiritual milk in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. So as he did earlier in chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, Peter builds the reasoning for his argumentation on the veracity of God's word. Since Christians have been born again through the living and abiding word of God, And as we will see in our text, the word of the Lord endures forever. Therefore, we can rid ourselves of these besetting sins, such as malice, deceit, and hypocrisy towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. Peter has much to say in this epistle regarding the local church. And as much as there are issues within the local body of Christ... Christians are to be identified by their love for one another. In the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, we find Jesus' words regarding this love. He says, A new commandment I give to you, speaking to the church, to the disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Francis Schaeffer points out that our Lord gives the world permission to judge the sincerity of our faith on the basis of our love for fellow Christians. As we just read in John, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So despite all her imperfections, We are to love the local church, the local body of believers. As one commentator states, rather than abandon the church, we should seek to regain a right understanding of the nature and purpose of God's church and to live that out faithfully during the time of our exile on this earth. It is possible that may mean finding a new church if our current church does not believe the gospel or its leaders will not teach the Bible. But it does not mean giving up on the church. Peter has much to say about local churches and he begins by showing that a New Testament church, a body of people who have been born again through the living word of God, is a body characterized by its love for each other. End quote. In this sermon, I want to look at three imperatives, three commands that instruct Christians how we are to love the body of Christ. We are to have an earnest love for the body of Christ. We are to put away sins against the body of Christ. And we are to long for pure spiritual milk as the body of Christ. So our first point in the outline, have an earnest love for the body of Christ. We see this in verse 22 to 25 of chapter 1. But verse 22 says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. 
Peter begins this text with an indicative, a statement of truth. Your souls have been purified by your obedience to truth. Much is said today, even within the walls of the church, regarding obedience. Often any mention of obedience gets labeled too quickly as legalism. When in truth, the scripture is filled with commands to be obedient to God's truth, to his word. We must learn to distinguish between legalism and holiness. If we add any law-keeping to salvation, or if we add any rules, be it preferential or traditional, to the Christian body that are not found within Scripture, then we walk a thin, dangerous line of having a legalistic mindset. But to reject the Bible's call to obedience to the commands of God for His children is just as foolish Peter opens this epistle with the statement that we are sanctified for obedience to Jesus Christ. We see that in verse 2 of chapter 1. Jesus himself, in what is known as the Great Commission, commands his disciples to make more disciples, and he says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So since Peter is telling the church here that their souls have been purified by their obedience to truth, We must ask the question then, what truth must I obey in order to purify my soul? What truth is Peter speaking about that we then must obey to purify our soul? Much should be considered in Peter's statement. He is indicating that our souls are purified because of our obedience. Yet we know that the reason we fail to give God perfect obedience is specifically because we are not yet perfectly pure. We often think that the purification of our souls takes place in order that we may become more obedient, and there is truth in that. But in this verse, it seems that the Apostle Peter is suggesting that our, purifi- sorry, that our purification is not only unto obedience, but also by obedience. We may be tempted to look at this as a vicious cycle, a vicious circle, but rather we should see this as a glorious circle in which purification fuels our obedience and our obedience in turn fuels our purification. It is not simply enough to just hear the truth, but we must obey it. You can have an unbeliever sitting together hearing the gospel and one responds and the other one doesn't. They both hear the truth. But we must obey it. It must go deeper than just our ears. It must enter into our hearts. And that is what obeying the truth here is speaking about. Peter clearly indicates what this truth is that purifies our souls. As the verse in consideration is bookmarked between two explicit statements regarding our salvation through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in verse 22 when he says, having purified our souls by your obedience for the truth, just before that we read, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, 
but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So verse 22 is stuck right in between two explicit statements regarding our salvation through the power of Jesus Christ. (coughs) Therefore, our souls being purified by obedience is speaking of us being sanctified, being set apart by believing the gospel. We have been set apart from this world by obeying the truth of the gospel, and it is precisely because of this that we are expected to have a sincere brotherly love for our brothers. Here Peter uses the word phileo for love. And we are called to have this love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Then he goes on and he commands us to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And here he uses the word agape. So he uses two different words in this sense. And this love, the agape love that Peter is referring to, it is the supernatural love that Christians are able to show to their brethren specifically because you are children of God. It is the love of Christ poured into us and it is what distinguishes the love of a true believer from that of other people. The unregenerate person can feel an erratic love or a human affection. They can love in this way. This is a phileo love. But it is because of God's love in us that we are able to love the church as Christ loves His bride. In fact, God's Word judges our salvation based on the love we show other believers. Let's turn to the book of 1 John for a minute. In 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 11, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, That we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteousness. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, 
We have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His command and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son of Jesus Christ and love one another, just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in Him. And we know, by this we know, that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Let's jump further into chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love, if we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is also as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he, who he has, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word and talk, but in deed and in truth. A powerful statement. Peter tells you that you have the ability to love like this now that your souls have been purified by obedience to the truth because you have believed the gospel, because you have been adopted into the family of God by Jesus' act of love in sacrificing himself as the payment for our sins. You can now genuinely love as he has loved, in deed and in truth. We ask ourselves the question then, how can we love like this? How can we love like Jesus loved? If we continue to read in our text, verse 23, chapter 1, verse 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, 
but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. We can love like this because the truth we are obedient to in the purification of our souls is based on the living, abiding, imperishable word of God. It is not dependent on our human capacity to love, but based on the very character of God revealed in His Word to us and for us. Our human affections drawn from within ourselves, from within the capacity of our flesh, are perishable. Or as Peter suggests in quoting Isaiah chapter 40, it will wither like the grass and fall as the flowers. But because the Scripture is the Word of God, it will remain forever. It is this enduring, abiding, living Word of God that grants us the ability to love supernaturally as Christ has loved us. Since Peter uses both phileo and agape love in verse 22, there's a reason for this. He is showing us that our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ is both affectionate and also volitional. We both feel love and we also resolve to love. This love is a way of life. It fulfills the law. We see in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 22, 36 to 40, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Because we are saved and sanctified by believing the truth of God's enduring word, our love endures much. A sincere, brotherly, and earnest love, they come together and we gladly help each other out in our time of need because we know that God's love endures much and comes to us in our most desperate time of need. So what does this love then look like in action? We continue with point number two in our outline. Point number two, put away sins against the body of Christ. So as we look at what this love will look like within the body of the churches, how we respond to the gospel toward each other, to the church, to the bride of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. The indicative statements in which the imperative to put away hinges is really both the preceding statements that we had in verse 23 of chapter 1, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. But it also hinges on Peter's statement in chapter 2, verse 3. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. We will look at this verse more closely later in the sermon. But for now, the conjunction soul, that starts verse 1 of chapter 2. Soul, put away 
all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. The conjunction here shows us that what Peter has just said at the end of chapter 1 serves as the antecedent to what he is about to say. That is, we are to love one another earnestly from a pure heart because we have been born again through the living and abiding Word of God. So, put away these sins. We see now Peter's practical instruction as to how this love of our brothers and sisters is to look in action. He is stating what the volitional aspect of this supernatural agape love looks like. And in a sense, what he is saying is, you are to love the bride of Christ, and this is what it looks like. This is how you do it. The verb translated in the ESV as put away is often used when someone takes off or lays aside clothing. And we see this in Acts chapter 7, verse 58. It says, Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at, a, at the feet of a young man named Saul. Peter uses the same Greek root word to instruct the church to put away these sins, as was used to describe that the witnesses laid down their garments. When Peter instructs us to put away these sins, he is picturing our taking them off as if they were soiled garments and casting them aside. He is... So you are, are to lay aside the kinds of behavior towards one another that undermine your profession of faith in Jesus. Instead, you are to do the very thing that gives evidence to the unbelieving world of the genuineness of your Christian profession. And that is to love the family of God. These sins that Peter lists in chapter 2, verse 1, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, they embody the fruit of an unregenerate person. They are the marks of an unbeliever who thinks of himself before others. He places his own needs, his own interests, before those of others. The Apostle Paul addresses this very attitude as well in his epistle to the Philippians where he exhorts the church to unity through humility. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 2 for a few minutes. So the Apostle Paul has exhorted, he's, he's, he's dealing with these issues within the church and he exhorts the church to be humble in order to pursue unity within the church. And in the first two verses of chapter 2, he says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He gives us the illustration of Christ's ultimate example of humility further on as the reason is why we are to be humble. Christ gave us this example of humility. In verse 5, he says, Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Again, we can accomplish this, fulfill this, because it is ours through Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." This illustration of Christ's humility is the reason why we are able to be humble. But then he gives us, right in between those two passages, the first two verses and the last ones that I read, he gives us what are known as imperative contrasts, as instructions. Imperative contrasts, commands through contrast for clarification. In verses 3 and 4, Paul writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So he's called the church to unity to complete his joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being full accord and of one mind. He gives us Christ's example of ultimate humility where he gave up glory to take on created form, to dwell as man, as God. But he gives us instruction in verses 3 and 4, do nothing from selfish ambition. So in both verses 3 and 4, he begins by stating what our natural fleshly inclinations are. Verses 3 and 4 begin with the thing that we naturally do acting from rivalry or conceit. In verse 3, and looking at our own interests first. In verse 4. And then, in both of those verses, he also contrasts this with the imperatives that should mark a believer. In verse 3, he says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. So rather than acting from rivalry or conceit, count others more significant than yourselves. And in verse 4, he instructs us to look at the interests of others. Rather than looking at our own interests first, that is what the natural man desires to do. We are to look at the interests of others. So not only do we have a living hope, and an imperishable inheritance as a result of our new birth. We also have a new heart that is capable of loving those who do not deserve to be loved, nor would embrace or return such love. We can now love in this way because through the new birth, we are now empowered to love as Jesus loved. This is what Peter is saying. Stop acting selfishly like the pagan world around you and start treating others in light of being part of the same family. You are brothers and sisters. The list of sins, again, he lists in verse 1, are all sins that attack other people. These are all things we do against others and therefore are the opposite of loving one another. Let's briefly define what these sins are that Peter lists. Malice. 
The word malice is a general word for evil or wickedness that carries with it hostility or possibly even an intention to harm towards others. It can also signify the bad blood and grudges that often motivate people in their behavior or attitudes towards others. Put it off. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy can also be translated as insincerity. In the English language, hypocrisy signifies deliberate deception. The Greek term does not necessarily have that sense. It includes ordinary inconsistency between belief and practice. Saying one thing and doing another. Saying one thing and acting in a different way. It includes deception of self as well as deception of others. If we reflect on ourselves, we will see that one can be both sincere and hypocritical. A person's sincerity is not a measure if they are hypocritical or not. Because if we first deceive ourselves, we will readily deceive others. Envy. Envy is the gnawing sorrow we feel when we see someone has something we think we deserve, or when we see someone has an advantage over us, or if someone is in a position or a role that we would desire. And if we have this feeling, this gnawing sorrow over that, we become envious. We are envious. Envy is a wretched vice because it hurts everyone it torments. It torments the subject who envies and it hopes to destroy the happiness of the one who is envied. Malice and envy readily lead to deceit and slander. Deceit, like malice, is a wide-ranging vice. It includes all dishonesty, whether in word or in deed. When we deceive, we shade or mask the truth. Slander. Slander is a bald opposition to the truth, ordinarily behind someone's back. When we think of slander, the name Satan means slander. It is Satan who slanders the church. It is not the role of the church to talk negative about the members within it. There are truths that must be spoken at times and in the right places. There are things that must be dealt with. But I think it is something we see, and we see it in our community. People walking around slandering the church based often on deceit or envy. These things are sins that destroy the body statement that helps us understand this a little bit. The deceiver hides the truth. The gossip sometimes tells the truth, but delivers it to the wrong people. The slanderer boldly lies, pretending to deliver the truth. Slander is speaking evil of someone to bring them harm, to ruin their reputation. These are all sins that harm relationships and destroy community. 
It should not be lost on us that the goal of our conversion is the very opposite of such sins. We are to pursue an honest or sincere, this means unhypocritical love, a brotherly love. The fact that Peter uses the word brotherly shows that he is still talking about a relationship amongst believers in the church. There's a familial relationship. We are family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And he is reminding his readers that they have to put off these ways listed in chapter 2 verse 1 when they obeyed the truth. These sins hinder Christian love and fellowship and must be put off. So how can we accomplish this reality that we are commanded to fulfill? This is what Peter now addresses in the next two verses. We are to long for pure spiritual milk as the body of Christ. Point number three. How are we able to do this? Long for the pure spiritual milk as the body of Christ. In chapter 2, verses 2 to 3, Peter says, Like newborn infants, long for this pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And as I pointed out earlier, the indicative statement, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, applies to both the imperatives found in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. God has caused us to be born again by His Word. And now Peter is telling us that this same Word that brought us into new life is also the same Word that will sustain us through our time here as exiles. We are told to long for the pure spiritual milk. So what does this mean? To quote Sanchez in his commentary, to long for something means to desire with great intensity. We are to crave the pure spiritual milk as a newborn baby craves its mother's milk. A newborn baby needs its mother's milk to survive. She is dependent on the mother for this food and for growth. In fact, she craves it naturally because she knows it is what she needs and all she needs. This is not meant to suggest that all the Christians in Asia Minor were new believers. Peter's point is that like newborn infants craving their mother's milk in the same way all believers are to crave the pure spiritual milk. In the same way, Christians who desire growth should naturally crave that milk which is essential and sufficient for their growth. End quote. We see Peter is not using milk here in the same sense Paul was when he rebuked the Corinthian church for remaining in their immaturity and not moving on to meat, signifying maturation. The pure spiritual milk we are to long for is the same word through which we were born again. Peter's argument flows from verses 22 to 25 of chapter 1. As we saw earlier, the soul in chapter 2 verse 1 tells us 
that these three verses are inferred from verses 22 to 25. They follow that. They are built on that. So Peter is telling us that all Christians, no matter their maturity, should long for the same word that saved them in order that they may grow up into salvation. The Apostle John writes in his Gospel, in chapter 8, verse 31 to 32, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Further, in chapter 17, verse 17, Paul, John writes, sorry, Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. So we can clearly see that the Word of God is active in our sanctification and is causative in our growing up into salvation. The word here referenced as spiritual milk is also pure, meaning unadulterated or without deceit. So as we put away deceit in these other sins that were listed in chapter 2 verse 1, We crave for the word that is untouched by these impurities. Impure milk is not helpful. In fact, it could be quite harmful, stunting our growth. Sadly, impure milk is readily available in our day, as it was in Peter's day. And we read in chapter 2 of 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 2. Starting verse 1, Peter says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies and even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So impure milk has been available since the beginning of time. False message, false gospels. And with much of what is available today on radio, television, the internet... And also over many pulpits, we must be sure that the spiritual milk we crave is first pure. It is also spiritual, meaning we recognize that God is the author of scriptures. We should read it then from a broad sense, picking up on the storyline of the complete Bible, as well as studying Uh, shorter sections, studying them in depth. Because all of the Word of God is the pure spiritual milk we should crave and sufficient for our growth and maturation. So we should memorize it. We should study it. We should talk about it. We should discuss it. We should teach others, our families, small groups. But we should not forget then the utmost importance of sitting under sound Bible preaching. And the privilege it then is to hear the Word of God preached rightly week after week. You will not grow as a Christian if you are not nurtured by the Word of God. There is no substitute for the Word of God. 
We long for this pure spiritual milk because indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The phrase indeed could also be translated since. Since you have tasted that the Lord is good. But the difference is the phrase if indeed causes you the reader to ask of yourself this question. Have I tasted that the Lord is good? It causes you to self-examine to know that you have or have not tasted that the Lord is good. Have you experienced His grace in salvation or have you not? If yes, then these imperatives to love earnestly, to put away these sins and to long for the pure milk of the Word. These imperatives are for you as you belong to the body of Christ. But if your answer is no, you have not tasted that the Lord is good. You have not experienced His salvation. Then we ask, what are you waiting for? Become obedient to the truth of the gospel. Trust in Jesus as the one who took your sins upon himself on the cross and paid for your penalty and turn from your sins and follow him that you too may taste and see that the Lord is good and you too may be welcomed into the fellowship of the body of Christ where we bestow this love upon each other and where we put off these sins against each other as we strive for unity and truth, and as we seek to love the Lord our God and love each other as He has loved us in an earnest love. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You again for this morning and for Your Word. And God, as we read today in Your Word, I pray that you would help us to love each other earnestly, to have a love for the body of Christ that you have for us, Lord, a supernatural love that not only do we feel affection for each other, God, but we work for each other. We help each other. We put off sins against each other. Help each one of us, Lord, to self-examine our lives and to see where we have these sins of malice, deceit, envy, hypocrisy, slander. Lord, and help us to put them off, as you have instructed us, as soiled garments to lay them aside. And help us, God, to crave, to long for this pure spiritual milk of your word all the more day by day, that through it we might continue to be purified and made and created into the image of likeness of Christ. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.